The end is fast approaching, and I'm not talking about the end of the world in our series of Revelation, but rather the end of the actual podcast series, Understanding Revelation. So we've only got a couple episodes left, uh, but today we're going to be looking at one of the most controversial passages in the entirety of this book. It's probably one of the most controversial chapters in the Bible, if you look at the multitude of interpretations and different schools of thought in interpreting this passage, and I'm talking about Revelation chapter 20, particularly as it refers to this mysterious thousand-year reign of the saints. Maybe you grew up in a church where people thought about what would mark the beginning of this thousand-year reign or what the nature of this thousand-year reign was. There's actually a a joke where people say that the the millennium, this thousand-year reign, is a thousand years of peace that Christians fight over. And unfortunately, that can be true. And it's important to remember that the book of Revelation is difficult to interpret, and many godly Christians interpret this passage in particular differently, and that's okay. They're within the bounds of orthodoxy, and it's important that we are charitable in our discussions about this. And in a lot of ways, the way that you read Revelation 1-19 to is going to determine how you read Revelation chapter 20. So we're, we're going to look at a couple of the different views of Revelation 20 as it relates to the millennium and how it all fits together with the entirety of of the Bible. But uh, charity in different views does not mean avoiding interpretation of these verses. God gave revelation to us and we must do our best to piece it together because this is a book of encouragement. It's a book meant to strengthen our faith. And we give revelation the time it deserves. We will find that strength, especially in our time of need. So we're going to dive in Revelation 20. Buckle up. This is Understanding Revelation. Revelation chapter 20 divides into four sections. First, there's the binding of Satan, verses 1 to 3, the millennium of the saints, verses 4 to 6, then the defeat of Satan, verses 7 to 10, and then the final judgment at the end of time, verses 11 to 15. And this chapter wraps up the plot line of the 144,000 martyrs as they receive their crowns and follow their savior into glory. These are the martyrs who die under the oppression of the beast and the false prophet and the dragon. So beasts and harlots make war against the saints, but this only serves to bring about their glorification and to cause judgment to fall upon the beast, which is Rome, and the false prophet of the Jewish uh, priesthood, and also judgment to fall upon the dragon himself, which we established is Satan. So let's look at these four sections one by one. Part one, the binding of Satan, verses one to three. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So we begin with the familiar image of an angel descending from heaven with an object in hand. This time he carries a key to a bottomless pit with a great chain. In Revelation chapter 9, a satanic figure named Abaddon releases demonic forces upon Israel. Here, that satanic figure, Satan himself, the dragon, gets stuffed back into the abyss to be sealed for a thousand years. If you look back in Revelation chapter 12, Satan the dragon is cast down from heaven after Christ's ascension. 
but he's given a short time to cause havoc on earth. Well, now that time is up. God seizes and binds Satan with regard to this, his ability to deceive the nations, and he binds him regarding that ability for a thousand year period. Now, Jesus told his disciples on the Great Commission that all authority on heaven and earth had been given to him, and that's why they can now go and disciple the nations and teach them to obey. He was given authority because it was taken from Satan. Satan can no longer deceive the nations with regard to the spread of the gospel. That's why the gospel can go forth. Now, Satan is still active in the world, persecuting the church and causing mayhem, but he is bound with regard to stopping the spread of the gospel until the end of the millennium. So there's a thousand year reign in which Satan is bound, unable to deceive the nations totally so that the gospel can go forth. Now that leads us to this thousand year reign we see in verses four to six, the descent of Satan into the pit corresponds with the ascent of the martyrs to heavenly thrones. So let's look at verses four to six. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So here, John sees heavenly thrones with people given authority to judge populating them. Perhaps this is what Paul means when he says in 1 Corinthians 6 that we will judge angels. Now, in Revelation chapters 4 to 5, we saw angelic elders with crowns who cast them down. Now, here we see those same crowns picked up, but not by angels, but humans, specifically the 144,000 sealed martyrs who were beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who would not worship the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads and on their hands. Their reward is that they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, I'm going to give a very, very general overview of three perspectives about what this thousand-year reign is talking to. And each one has nuances and differences. So don't get mad if I misrepresent it. The differences between the different views on the millennium center on the timing of the millennium in relation to Christ's return, his second coming. It also relates to the nature of Satan's binding during the millennium and the location of the millennium. So the timing of the millennium in relation to Christ's second coming, the nature of Satan's binding during the millennium, and the location of the millennium. So let me go through the different views. First is what we call premillennialism. Premillennialism. Christ returns prior, pre, to the millennium, to this thousand-year reign. That means that the thousand-year reign is in the future, and its location is earthly. And Satan being bound means he's completely bound with regard to his activities, pre-millennialism, Christ returns prior to the millennium. Then we have amillennialism, Christ returns after the millennium, which is present, and it's also located in heaven. It's a heavenly reign, and Satan is bound with respect with, to his ability to deceive the nations, but he's still active in the world, but he can't deceive the nations. Okay, so pre-millennialism, Christ returns 
prior to the millennium. On millennialism, Christ returns after the millennium, and the millennium is in heaven rather than on earth, and Satan is bound only with respect to deceiving the nations, versus in premillennialism, Satan is bound entirely. Now, there's a third view that is an offshoot of amillennialism, and it's called postmillennialism. Okay? Postmillennialism says that Christ returns after post the millennium, like amillennialism. But the difference is it is a present heavenly and earthly reign. Okay, so where amillennialism in general says that this reign of Christ and the saints is primarily heavenly, postmillennialism says it will also manifest itself on the earth. And Satan is bound with respect to his ability to deceive the nations. So amillennialism and postmillennialism are cousins. They're very close. But in general, postmillennialism is more optimistic about the earthly spread of the gospel and the idea that when Christ returns after the millennium, he's going to come to a mostly Christianized, baptized, converted world. Okay, so postmillennialism is often called optimistic amillennialism, but there's some nuances and differences. And if you've been following and tracking, our perspective in understanding Revelation is broadly the postmillennial perspective, although a lot of it, again, has overlap with amillennialism, and it's the most different from premillennialism. So if we want to look at this from a postmillennial perspective, Revelation 20 is going to look like this. God has bound Satan with regard to deceiving the nations after the destruction of the temple. Now the martyrs reign in heaven. Their exaltation is called the first resurrection with Christ, which I also think is tied in with our new birth when we become Christians. That's, that's a first resurrection. Right? We, we die and we come to life in Christ. The martyrs at the base of the altar in Revelation 6 were told to wait a little while for their exaltation. Remember, they're, they're crying out, will you avenge our blood? And God says, no, there still need to be more martyrs. The 144,000 martyrs must be sealed and then they must die and rise so that the full complement of the martyrs is fulfilled and then God's judgment on Jerusalem can come. Now, what we see here is that this is not only a reward for those who died in the first century, but also to all who hold to the testimony of Christ. So all who die in Christ from the first century till now and, and beyond are going to ascend into heaven and be with Christ as they await the resurrection of their bodies, which we're going to see later on in this chapter. Our elevation to the heavenly life, again, is it's the first resurrection, a spiritual one. And that prevents us, as we learn, from experiencing the second death, which later is identified as the lake of fire. So our first resurrection is rebirth in Christ and exaltation into the heavenly places. But our second resurrection will be our bodily and physical resurrection. Likewise, our first death is our physical death, but our second death is spiritual death in the lake of fire or hell. So if you want to think about it, our first resurrection in Christ, our spiritual resurrection prevents our spiritual uh, death, which is the second death. And our second resurrection, our bodily resurrection overcomes our first death, which is the physical death that we're going to experience. Now, I do believe that the Great Commission will succeed. The heavenly reign of the saints will be established on earth as in heaven, which is the Lord's prayer. And I think the thousand years is symbolic, but it's symbolic for a really long period of time, right? It's not symbolic for two years. The majority of Revelation is symbolic with its numbers. I don't know why a thousand years would be any different. 
Uh, but the church is going to advance like it did in Revelation through the blood of the martyrs, which becomes seed for the church. The vast majority of Christians throughout history held to amillennialism and even some forms of postmillennialism. A significant portion of the Reformed tradition was postmillennial. Guys like Jonathan Edwards and some other uh, some Puritans were postmillennial as well. The vast majority of Americans, though, are probably premillennial. Uh, but some early church fathers, like Judge, uh, Justin Martyr, adopted this view as well. So there, there's a wide witness, a wider range of perspectives among godly theologians throughout Christian history. So we don't want to be overly dogmatic, but I do think there's a lot of good evidence that the post-millennial view is correct. But <laughs> I could be wrong, and if I'm wrong, then uh, I'll come up with another Understanding Revelation podcast and, and redo it. Uh, but th- that's the millennium. The third part is in verses 7 to 10, which is the defeat of Satan. So we've dealt with the controversial part. Now let's get to something we can all agree on. After the thousand-year reign, Christ releases and then defeats Satan in a battle, the battle of Armageddon, and he casts him into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. So listen to Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We have a reference to Gog and Magog, which ties into Ezekiel's prophecy of nations allied against Israel. There will be a future battle like that. And Satan's release after the thousand-year reign allows him once again to deceive the nations, which brings God's enemies together in a concentrated, united effort against the church. Again, this is in the future, in our future. Individual nations in our present age can still rebel against God and persecute the church, but an actual worldwide effort is staved off until Satan is released. And when he is released, the armies of the world will march against the beloved city, which indicates the new Jerusalem. The fact that a new Jerusalem is mentioned and there's a city to march against assumes that the new Jerusalem is already there. So I think the new Jerusalem in this instance is referencing, it's symbolically speaking about the church. So the world's going to ally against the church in this final climactic battle, but God is going to deliver his people and destroy the armies and the nations assembled against his people uh, by casting them out and by destroying them with fire. So God will finally destroy the enemies of his church, and this has implications for the next chapter. But for now, there's one major battle against Satan in the future when the ancient serpent The red dragon will be put to rest in the lake of fire in eternal judgment. And that brings us to this last section of Revelation 20, the final judgment, verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
Here we catch a glimpse of the final day of the Lord. This is the actual end of history in the future. If you read through the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is a historic judgment that God gives. But all of these historic judgments, the exile, the exodus, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, these are just foretastes of the final worldwide cosmic judgment of God at the end of history when he puts all things to right. So earth and sky flee and the dead rise, both the righteous and the unrighteous, and they rise before books of judgments which chronicle their deeds. And then there's another book, the book of life, and it's open and it contains names of those who are in Christ. Now these two books are two fates. Either you get judged by your own deeds and are cast into the lake of fire, or you trust in Christ's deeds on your behalf and end up in the book of life. Now, what we notice here is death and Hades themselves are cast into the fire along with all the unrighteous. This is the great sorting into eternity. The Eastern Orthodox often say that there's no difference between the fire of hell and the light of God's glory. And there's something to that. The lake of fire burns because God's presence is there against those who rebel. In other words, the choices in this life matter. Those who enter into the new heavens and new earth are those who trust not in their own works, but in the works of Christ on their behalf, on the salvation and the redemption of Jesus Christ's incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension. And those who trust in their own works are the ones who will be judged by their own lives, written in the books of judgment. And what this shows us is that God is going to hold us to account. He knows our hearts. He knows every intent. He knows the moral deeds of our lives. And we're all going to fall short unless we trust in the provision he has given us in Jesus Christ. And this is, again, the revelation of revelation. It's Jesus Christ himself. So if we understand revelation, we're going to turn to Christ. We're going to believe in him for eternal life so that on this last day, our names might be found in the book of life. And we might inherit not the lake of fire, but the springs of eternity in the new Jerusalem, in the new creation. So a lot matters. A lot is on the line here. And it's a question for all of us, all of us listening. Which path are you going to take? Which book will your name be written in? And you have a chance today, now, to enter the book of life and to have your name written in the history of eternity. The choice is yours. It's presented to the first century and to the 21st century. The ball's in your court. Which path will you choose?